0: I'd like to share with you a story uh, Before I actually became a pastor uh, And uh, it was quite soon after I'd been working for about five years I decided to uh, I was in between jobs and I decided to uh, take a job or not really a job like A volunteer unpaid position As a Christian staff worker uh, On the University of New South Wales in Australia Just for uh, six months And uh, it, was a, it was very interesting Because I was actually doing Christian work on campus And I remember going to a dinner uh, It was just a dinner which was unrelated to uh, my work, and I met this uh, Chinese man, and he was a doctor, and uh, he uh, we were talking for a little bit, and I, he uh, was asking me what I was doing, and I said, oh, you know, I was uh, I was at university, and I was a volunteer, unpaid uh, Christian staff worker, and he says to me, he says, I was like you before, you know, and I was like, wow, what did you do before? He said, I used to be on the university before, and I was a Christian staff worker. And then I, uh, I talked a bit more to him and I said, What are you doing now? Are you still going to church? And he said, Oh, no, not really. I'm not really going to church anymore. Uh, maybe just Christmas time. Uh, you know, he said he was very busy. He was a very busy person. He had a family. And I felt really sad, actually, because um, in many ways, uh, when I looked at him, I, I got really worried because I thought, you know, here was someone who was doing what I was doing many, many years ago. And look at him now, right? He was a family man. He was a very successful doctor. And yet, he was not really a strong Christian anymore. What used to be a very strong flame and passion for Jesus seemed to be uh, just a, you know, a very weak amber or, or maybe no fire at all for, for Jesus. And I don't know whether you know people like that. Have you ever met people like that? Uh, I know of uh, someone in our congregation who actually told me before of someone who brought them to Christ. And right now, uh, when they I when they met up with them again, they were no longer Christians. And I think that when we hear stories like that, when I hear stories like that, it makes me really worried. And I think, well, what happened to them? Uh, could I be like that in many years' time? And how can I not become like that? How do I keep my passion for Jesus, my Christian walk, going? And I think that today's passage actually helps us a lot, well, helped me a lot when I consider that issue. Because actually today's passage uh, deals with uh, really the issue of complacency and uh, carelessness in a relationship with God. Now, we've only got five verses, so it gives us a bit of a luxury to look at them quite closely. But it begins in Malachi chapter 1, and it says, An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, um, the word here begins, it says that an oracle. Okay, If you look at your Bibles, I don't know what it says in the other versions, but it says there, an oracle, and that's what it means. Now, an oracle is uh, different from a vision. Now last week we studied the book of Obadiah, and Obadiah, So she says, the vision of Obadiah. An oracle is not the same as a vision. An oracle is actually, uh, literally means, in its original language, it's carrying a burden. Something that's very burdensome. And it's the idea of not good news, but bad news. Uh, bad news which you, tr- you, you communicate to people because it's full of dread, warning, foreboding, and danger. Okay, and... So when we already immediately when you open the book of Malachi, you know that this is not good news, but it's bad news. It's a warning, and it comes through uh, this person called Malachi. Okay, now it it is not the Mexican prophet El Malachi, okay, but it's actually the the Jewish prophet Malachi. Okay, that's the way you pronounce it, Malachi. Okay, and we don't know much about uh, Malachi. Okay, we don't know who his father is. We don't know. where he's from, uh, you know, what his context is. All we know is his name is Malachi, which means messenger, the messenger of God. And he's literally a messenger of God because it says there in verse 1, the word of God to, of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, um, I want you to pay attention because it says the word of the Lord to Israel, uh, which is a really strange thing when you think about it because the people of God at this time are not living in Israel. They're living in Judah. Okay, so what exactly is happening here? Uh, next slide. Okay, so uh, okay, so you see that the Israel used to be no, it was actually the Northern Kingdom, and uh, Judah was the Southern Kingdom. But Israel really is the name of God's people. It's not just a geographic region. It is the name of God's people, and that's why even though next slide. Okay, uh, I forgot my laser pointer is there, but you can see uh, at this point in time the people have uh, left Babylon and they've gone all the way back to Jerusalem here. okay? So they've have, they have been exiled for 70 years and uh, God has freed them from the Babylonian exile and captivity and they've been, come all the way back to Judah. So why doesn't God say uh, the word of the Lord to Judah, to the people living in Judah? Why does he say Israel? Well, I think it's because the name Israel and the Lord when you put them together, it actually means something. Right? So if you look at your Bibles again, look at what it says there. It says, The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Because, uh, the word here, Lord, look at your Bible carefully, Lord, you notice it is L-O-R-D, capital letters. Every time you look in the Bible, and you see L-O-R-D, capital letters, it means Yahweh. It is God's name, Yahweh. And the very first time God reveals his name, Yahweh, L-O-R-D, capital letters, right, to his people, the Israelites, was in Exodus chapter 3. Next slide, right? So God said to Moses, say to the Israelites, right, Israel, my people, the Lord, Yahweh, right, capital letters, L-O-R-D, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And that's why, when we look at the very first line, the first verse of the book of Malachi, it says, Say to Israel, right, that the word of the Lord has come to it. And it says there, the next slide, right? Oh, uh, okay, don't worry. But if you say that in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. Because, It's like looking at the marriage certificate. You know, when you look at the marriage certificate, and what are the names there? The the names are Yahweh and Israel. Right? Yahweh and Israel. And that's why, when we look at verse 2, God can say, I have loved you, says the Lord. Because He's speaking to His people. And right from the very beginning, His people Israel, were to love Yahweh, and Yahweh was to have a relationship of love to his people Israel. They have a covenant relationship. And that's why God can say, I have loved you. Because they have a relationship, like a marriage certificate. But then, look at what, uh, look at what Israel says in verse 2b. But you ask, how have you loved us? Right? How have you loved us? So Israel and the Lord, Yahweh, are married. They have a covenant relationship. They have a covenant contract. And God says, look, I love you. But Israel says, how have you loved me? Now last week, uh, I shared with you a song by this guy called Billy Joel. And not many of you knew it. So today I'm going to share with you, share with you another song by Janet Jackson. Anybody know Janet Jackson? Okay, I'm sure all of you know Michael Jackson, right? So Michael Jackson has a sister called Janet Jackson. And she used to sing in the 80s. Right. and she used to sing this song called What Have You Done For Me Lately? Right? What Have You Done For Me Lately? This is all true, I'm not making it up, right? you can Google it. Okay? And, and this, basically this song is about how, uh, it's a boyfriend-girlfriend song, like, What Have You Done For Me? And I think that's what uh, Israel is saying to her covenant God in verse 2. Well, how, have you loved, how have you loved us? What have you done for us lately? And when you look at the book of Malachi, right from the very beginning, you see that it's got a very interesting style, structure. Seven times in the book of Malachi, there has this question-answer structure. So God will say something, and Israel will say something else, and God will respond. Now it's not as if Israel, uh, God's people, literally asked that question, like, you know, how have you loved us? But God is actually saying that by her actions, uh, by her thinking, by the way she acts, she's actually thinking that, how have you loved me, right? So, <clears throat> the question we have to ask ourselves is, why, why does Israel, why does God's people ask the question, how have you loved us? Now, again, the historical context uh, plays a part in this. We need to understand where this is coming from. Now, we know that the book of Malachi was a, a, a post-exilic book. Uh, it means that it's written after the exile. Okay, that means... Uh, God's people have been taken from Babylon and they're now back in Jerusalem. So the exile of God's people under the Babylonians has ended. They've been set free. But they, they now live under the, uh, after the exile but it's a very um, blah sort of period. No, nothing much is happening. They've been there since the second or third generation but it's not very impressive. Uh, the temple has been rebuilt but it's not as impressive as the first temple. They are prosperous to a degree, but they are not as prosperous as the time of David and Solomon. Uh, they are not totally independent. They have a foreign governor. right? <coughs> so, they, don't really have, they haven't really gone back to the good old days, the glory days. So, I'll read to you uh, a very good summary from this uh, daily devotional called For the Love of God by Don Carson. And this is what he says about the context of Malachi. He said, By Malachi's day, both the wall and the temple had been rebuilt. The returned remnant had settled down. But nothing of great significance had occurred very recently. There was not much going on. The political situation was stable. Religious freedom was secure. The prescribed rituals were carried out. But it all lacked passion and zeal and the fear of the Lord. The returned Jews were characterized by a world-weary cynicism that will not be moved. So that's why... uh, Israel, God's people, were asking God, what have you done for me lately? Because life was sort of just drifting along. Right? They didn't feel that God was really doing very much. They could see that in the past, God had done a lot for his people. right? So in, in, the, in the history of Israel, first slide, okay, so Malachi is written after the exile. You can see that, right? So the exile is, is around there, but they, they came back around 400 uh, 50 plus BC. Okay, next slide. So what had God done for them in the past? What had God done for God's people Israel in the past? Well, He had chosen Abraham all the way from Ur and brought him all the way to to Israel. Okay, so God had done great things in the past. Next slide. Right, God had saved and brought His people out of Egypt and brought them all the way to the promised land. Okay, next slide. And the past, God had given. Israel and each of the 12 tribes their own piece of territory in the promised land. And next slide. And uh, God had given David and Solomon a vast kingdom. But in the time of the ex after the post exile uh, period, the people were saying, What have you done for me lately? The Janet Jackson song, right? They were asking, uh, why? why? Why is it we don't see any real evidence of God's love in our life today? Now, When you look at the book of Malachi, every time uh, Israel asks a question, it is always a a bad question. It reflects a wrong attitude to God. And I think that even just after these first two verses, we can learn that uh, the attitude of, of Malachi has a lot to teach us. Sorry, the attitude of Israel has a lot to teach us. So the first thing that we learn is, Israel measures God's love by what God has done for it recently. You notice that? That, that is the problem, right? They, say, they are saying to God, how have you loved us? And when they ask the question, how have you loved us? They mean, what have you done for us lately? Right? Yeah, maybe you've done all these great things for the previous generations of our grandfathers and our forefathers. You brought them out of Egypt. You gave them the land. You chose Abraham. But what have you done for us lately? And I think that that's a problem that we face too, isn't it? That's an attitude that all humans face. Not just Jews in those days, Christians today. So, we always think God loves us, right? Uh, I guess I could ask you to put out your hand. Do you feel God loves you? Yes, of course. We all say God loves us. And then we say, well, you know, you see those car stickers which say God loves you. And you go to uh, sporting events and you see John 3.16, right? John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. But I wonder whether in the back of our minds whether we are like the Israelites. And we say to God, yes, you love us, but what have you done for me lately? How have you loved me? Right? Jesus died for me 2,000 years ago, but what have you done for me since then? And I remember the principal of my theological college said that that's the motivation behind a lot of the signs and wonders movement. You know, like people want to see miracles and healings. Why do people want to see miracles and healings so much? Because they want to feel God's love for them today. Now, recently. So if I see a miracle, God takes away my coal, God loves me. But isn't that the sinful attitude of the Israelites then? They were sort of saying, what have you done for me lately? How have you loved us, God? The second problem is, it's not just the problem of wanting to see God act now or recently, but Israel were measuring how God loved it materially. When they said, how have you loved us, God? They were sort of saying, well, if you loved us, why are we living in such a shabby situation? Isn't that what they're really saying? Why is our temple so bad? Why is it our houses haven't been upgraded? Why is it uh, our MRT is not less crowded? Isn't that what they're really saying? That's what they're saying, isn't it? They're saying that love must be manifested, God's love must be manifested in a material Way, and uh, I think that we still have the same attitude. Uh, we are still tempted to feel that if God, you love me, why is it you haven't reflected it in the material way? Why is it I'm still stuck in my in the job I I don't like? Why is it I'm not richer than I am? Why is it I'm not more successful uh, than I am? And I like what this uh, Phil, uh, this uh, pastor in America, Phil Newton said. He said that's why. Marshmallow theology is so popular today. So he starts saying, You know what marshmallow theology is? He's saying, Prosperity Gospel is the marshmallow theology of today. See, marshmallow is like, you know what marshmallow is, right? Marshmallow tastes nice, right? And once you eat one, you want to eat more than one. But in the end, it's, it's empty calories, right? It doesn't actually give you any nutrition at all. And he says, That's what uh, Prosperity Gospel is like marshmallow theology. Once you eat one, you eat some more. It makes you feel good that somehow you feel like God. Is blessing you materially and giving you all these things, but it's not what the Bible is saying. It doesn't actually give you any nutrition. But marshmallow theology is so popular because we feel that if God loves us, He must, He must bless me in a material way. But that's the wrong attitude because that's the attitude that the Jews had, the Israelites had, when they said, How have you loved us? And they were looking for material things. But how does God respond to these two wrong attitudes? The fact that they want God to love them now in a material way. Well, God answers in a very strange way. He says in verse 2, "This says, was not Esau, Jacob's brother, the Lord says. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland, and left his inheritance to the desert jackals, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild this ruin. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. The Lord may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Now this is a really strange answer, and it's, it's a, it's, um, it sort of shows that God thinks in a very different way than we do. Because usually when someone says to you, how have you loved me? You say, well, didn't I do this for you? And I did this, 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 right? But what a weird way to answer. God sort of says that he loves them by hating someone else. Isn't that what it says there? I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I will punish and judge Esau. And you sort of like read it and think, okay, this doesn't really help me at all. Uh, How does this help? me know that God loves me when He says that He actually hates someone else? Uh, How does the hating of someone else help me know that God loves me a lot? I think what God is saying is this, right? He's saying that okay, Jacob and Esau, as we saw last week, were brothers. Okay, um, Remember Abraham was blessed by God. God said that through Abraham the whole world will be blessed. And then Abraham had a son named Isaac who inherited God's blessing. And Isaac had two children, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older, Jacob was the younger. Not by very much, probably a few seconds or minutes, whatever, right? Because they were twins. okay. And uh, Jacob uh, became Israel, the people living in Judah. And Esau became Edom, the people living in Edom. So next slide. Right, so Jacob became Judah. Esau was the people in Edom. And God says, Jacob I love, and Esau I hated. And that's a, a really strange thing to say, because basically, God was bringing them back to the founding of their separate nations. And He says that, look, I chose to love you, Israel. And I chose to love you, Israel, against all human expectation and understanding. So, if you look up here on the slide, right? Again, coming back to uh, the family tree, Esau was the oldest son. And uh, in the the culture of the day, as the oldest son, he should have received the blessing of, of the father. He should have received the blessing of God. God should have said, I love Esau. The father... Isaac, right? He loved Esau more than Jacob. So again, uh, humanly speaking, uh, Esau should have been loved by God the Father. He should have received the blessings of Isaac. And again, we don't have time to go through the whole Bible. But you know, if you know anything about Jacob, the other son, he was not a very nice person. like Jacob, honestly, right? I mean, he was a liar. He was a cheat. He's very cunning, a very he's very slimy sort of person, right? You wouldn't, I mean, personally, I wouldn't want Jacob as my business partner, right? Would you, right? Okay. So, humanly speaking, uh, Jacob doesn't deserve. I mean, if humanly speaking, he doesn't deserve God's love, right? But yet, God said, "I chose Jacob, but I rejected uh, Esau." He said, "In fact, he said, I hated uh, Esau.'" And the amazing thing is. <clears throat> God didn't choose Jacob. God didn't choose Israel because he sat, made them sit down for a performance appraisal. Right? Or maybe he watched them live a couple of years in their life and uh, watched them out. So you know, they're both not very good but I think Jacob is better. Jacob loves me more. No, because the Bible says that actually even before they were born, even before they left their mother's womb, God already chose Jacob but he hated Esau. And what God is trying to emphasize in the book of Malachi here is that He chooses sovereignly. God chooses to love one person and hate one person, not because we are more lovable or more attractive or more worthy, but because of His own mercy and grace. It is His own sovereign choice. Thinking about it, I hope you feel a bit uncomfortable because I think it's a very uncomfortable thing for us isn't it? because we, we, we sort of think, that sounds really unfair. I mean, if you want to, Speak it out. Normal words, right? It sounds very unfair, right? Why should God choose one or the other just based on his own sovereign choice? And not only that, when you look at it, we think, okay, okay, you know, okay, God has a choice. He can choose to love. But how can he choose to hate? I mean, that's even more unfair. Now, some people, if I listen to some sermons on the net, and even our uh, Matthias Media Bible study, they try to downplay a bit about uh, the idea of God hating and choosing in, in, in such a stark way, right? Uh, so they say, oh, you know, actually God doesn't really hate Esau. You know? he just, it's just a literary device to show that he loves Jacob so much that he loves Esau less. So they, they will look at uh, Luke chapter 14, which is up here, and they'll say, you know, hate is just a literary device. So uh, Jesus said this, So Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or his mother, uh, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, in this section, Luke chapter 14, God, sorry, Jesus, who is God, sorry, um, doesn't really mean hate, as in hate, right? Because in other parts of the Bible, we're told to love our fathers and mothers. We're told to honor them. Uh, We're definitely told to love our wives and children. Uh, and we're told to love other people. But, but Jesus is really saying here is you, you love Jesus so much that by comparison, uh, you don't love these other people as much. But remember I keep saying context is, is the right way to understand the Bible. Context, 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 right? So in Malachi, he doesn't use, God doesn't use the word hate in this way. He, he's not saying, oh, I love Jacob a lot, but you know, I only love Esau a little bit. When he says he loves Jacob and he hates Esau, he literally means that. Hate, meaning hate. And we can see that because in the context, if you look at verse 2 again, he says, I love Jacob, I hate Esau, I've hated. And, and when he hates Esau, what happens? And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Uh, Edom may say, Though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But the Lord Almighty says, They may build, but I will demolish. Uh, They will always be called the wicked land. The people are always under the wrath of the Lord. See, when God chooses to love and hate, when He hates someone, it means that, ultimately, they will come to destruction and wrath and anger. Now, God, when He says that He will destroy, and He's under God's wrath, He's not joking, right? It's not like a, a figure of speech or a metaphor or picture language. He literally means He will judge and He will destroy and He will bring God's wrath on you. Now, last week we looked at the book of uh, Obadiah, and we remember the book of Obadiah. Next slide, right? Was written in the exile. Now Malachi is after the exile, and Obadiah had predicted that Edom, God's people, will be destroyed. And remember what it said last week? That they live in the mountains and they're so proud of their mountains. They're like eagles and eagles cannot be touched in the mountains. But God said, I will bring them down and destroy them. So this is now Malachi after the exile, right? And after the exile, it says there uh, that in verse uh, 2, right, that that their mountains are like a wasteland. So uh, remember last week I showed you this picture? that uh, Edom, they lived in the mountains and one of the cities was called like Petra. Okay, so next slide. So they had these great cities uh, in the mountain places. Next slide. Okay, but but God had said that by 450 uh, BC, when Malachi was being preached, that these mountain strongholds, they were, they were like wasteland. There was no one living there. It was like uh, Chernobyl or Fukushima or whatever, right? It's like no one lives there. It's deserted. Why is this happening? Because God hated Esau and knew that judgment would come upon Esau. And he goes on to say, right, that they will, they will try to rebuild their cities and re- repopulate them and live them in them. But the history textbook will tell us that God's prophecy in Malachi would come true. That they would never successfully rebuild Edom. So if you look at this slide, so Malachi was written around 450 BC, maybe a bit later or ever earlier. But we know that soon afterwards, in 400 BC, these people called the Nabatean Arabs, they came and invaded Edom and destroyed them a bit more. And then the Maccabees came around 185 BC and again defeated them. And about 150 years later, just before Jesus, the whole nation of Edom was no longer in existence. So that's what God really means. When he says, I hate someone, that means that person is destined for destruction, for judgment, for God's wrath. So, when God says that he loves you and he hates you, how do we see that love and hate? We see that love and hate in salvation, in salvation. And in deliverance and in judgment and God's wrath. So when Israel says, how have you loved me? God, what have you done for me lately? God's answer is, I have loved you because I will continue to deliver you and protect you and give you salvation. And you will see that because if I were not to love you and I were to hate you, you would be like the Edomites and you would be destroyed and you would face my judgment and you would face my wrath. I think that's a really important lesson for us because love when we, you know, ever you ask, you know, have you ever had the time where you ask yourself, God, God, where are you? Do you really love me? Right? Maybe you lost your job, maybe someone died. How have you loved me, God? Well, God shows His love, not in the material ways, right? not that you get a new Ferrari, okay, God loves me a lot, right? but God loves me because that love is shown in salvation. God is shown in deliverance, that love is shown that you're not destroyed under God's wrath. See, John 3.16 says this very clearly, right? Next slide. Okay, John 3.16 says this For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, how is God's love shown? It is always shown in salvation terms, in protection terms, in, in deliverance terms. It doesn't say God so loved the world that you will get all your dreams come true, that you will have, uh, you get to the end of the rainbow, right? It says that God so loved the world that He gave you His Son so that you will be saved and you'll be forgiven. That's how God loves you. But in verse 4, B 4, 4 to 5 onwards, it sort of goes on to talk about a slightly different issue, right? Because He goes on to say, uh, you will see it with your own eyes, and you will say, "Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel." Now, why does uh, why does um, God say this? Well, because in the in the olden days, uh, there was this thinking that okay, each nation has its own God. Okay, so like it's like uh, you know, uh, the Jews they have Yahweh, Edom they have another God, the Samaritans they have another God. The, the, the people living in Egypt, they have every, every God is a God for each different people. But God actually says that, look, um, I'm not that sort of God, right? Because it says that I'm a God who extends beyond the borders of Israel. I'm the God who is greater uh, than just within this Jewish nation. God is not a territorial God. And that's why they say great is the Lord. Great is the Lord is not because He judges Edom and, and, and destroys Edom, right? Remember the theme is God's love. Great is the Lord because when he judges other people, he shows his love for Israel and not judging her. See, ultimately, <clears throat> what sort of God do we have? What is your picture of God in your mind? Right? Well, when you think of God, what is he like? Well, he's a big God, isn't it? And because he's a big God, he can control things around the world. He can choose who he loves and choose who he hates. He can choose who to save and choose who to judge. Okay, um, now, that means that you are here today, uh, you became a Christian not because you are smarter, not because you are better, not because you are more lovable, but because God chose you. Because God showed you grace and showed you compassion. You see, I I remember when I first became a Christian, uh, there was this guy called Joshua Ng. He was our church camp speaker. and He he read the Bible with me over a series of a few months uh, when I was studying as a student. And after a few months of reading the Bible, I became a Christian. I was convinced that the Bible was true. I was convinced that it was history. Now, the thing is, Joshua does that with tens of people every year. Maybe in his whole lifetime of ministry over two decades, he's probably done it with more than hundreds of people. Why is it some people, after reading the Bible for a few weeks or months, become Christian? Why is it some don't? Is it because they're smarter? Is it because, I don't know, they're more sensitive to God's Word? Ultimately, isn't it because God chose those people? And God didn't choose the others. You see, uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says this thing, For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. See, why are we here today? Well, it's because God chose us before we were even created. Before the world was created. Before we were in our mothers' wombs, and before our mothers were in our mothers' wombs, and before their mothers were in their mothers' wombs, before the creation of the world, God already chose us. So, that means that it's got nothing to do with us. It's got everything to do with God. Right? Why we are saved has nothing to do with us, but it's got everything to do with God. See, the problem is that we have a very high view of ourselves and a very low view of God. See, we have a high view of ourselves because, I think, I don't know about you, but in my mind, somehow, I think, you know, actually, I deserve to be loved by God. You know, because uh, deep down inside, I'm a good person or I've got this seed of goodness in me. Uh, I've done this good thing in my life. Uh, You know, I'm worthy of God's love. But actually none of us are worthy of God's love. right? All of us are sinners. None of us deserve God's love at all. If God loves us, it is because He chose to love us in spite of ourselves. And the problem is we have a very low view of God, right? <clears throat> How do you view God? What is your picture of God? When we think of God, we often think of God as just a slightly bigger human being. Slightly more powerful, slightly more knowledgeable, and... uh so a nicer person than we are. Okay, so uh, maybe we're like this, right? You know, have you, there's an old movie called Bruce Almighty. So maybe, you know, we think of God like Morgan Freeman. Okay, M- Morgan Freeman is this black guy on, a, on my right, right? You know, he's got a nice personality. You know, he's quite humorous, a twinkle in his eye. But just a nice guy. Like God is like a nice guy. But you see God is not like that. God is not a bigger version of ourselves. God is, is beyond us. So someone was saying, you know, uh, if you could think of the distance between earth and the sun. Okay, you know, earth and the sun is a very long way, right? It's a very, very long way. But think of the distance between the earth and the sun. And if you could reduce it to uh, something to scale, right? So imagine uh, the distance between the earth and the sun would be like the distance of this paper. The, the, the thickness of this paper. It's like the earth and the sun. Okay, that, imagine the distance is like this paper. Okay? If the distance between the earth and the sun was like reduced to this size and scale, to the thickness of this paper, then the distance between earth and the nearest star would be how many pieces of this paper? It would be a stack of paper 20 meters high. That's how far the earth is to the nearest star. And imagine, if you wanted to measure the diameter of our galaxy, right, you know the galaxy is a very big place. The diameter of a galaxy is a stack of this sort of paper, 500 kilometers high. Now just imagine how big and vast the galaxy is. Now if we believe in God, and we believe that God created all things, then God created this galaxy which is huge, isn't it? So no wonder... No wonder we can say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel, because He is so great that He controls everything in the world. And that is the God that loves you. That is the God that chose you. And He chose you with a love which is not a fickle love, right? It's not like the love that you get from some people, you know, in your Facebook or your SMS, where there hugs and kisses and crosses and everything else, right? It is a love which God showed to Israel, the Lord showed to his people Israel a covenant love, a contracted love in which he will always be faithful to them. And this is a God who chooses me. He chose you. This God who created this great universe and galaxy chose to love you. A small, sinful, finite creature. That's what it says in Romans chapter 9, right? If you look up here in Romans chapter 9. Next slide. <clears throat> Yet before the twins were born, okay, this is Jacob and Esau, and had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I love and Esau I hate it. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. See, if you look at this passage, it's very clear, isn't it? That God chooses to love and God chooses to hate. And if God has loved you, what a privilege that is. How precious that is, that God, who created everything, loves you because He just chose to love you. We should never take that for granted. And that was the problem for Israel. They were taking God's love for granted. They thought that something in them deserved God's love. And we can feel that way too, you know? We can sort of have this complacent, careless attitude to God's love. You think, oh you know God should love me. I'm a very lovable person. But no, God's love for you is special. He chose you before the creation of the world. And in spite of all the bad things that you are, you're just a creature. Now, we we might struggle with why God hates people, but that's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is to give thanks for God's love for you. So, uh, Charles Spurgeon, I'm not sure what he's preaching on this passage, uh, was asked by his parishioner, Uh, This woman came up to him and said, "I cannot understand why God hated uh, Esau. Sorry, not Spurgeon. I cannot understand why God hated Esau." And Spurgeon replied, "That is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand why God loved Jacob." See, isn't it? Isn't that what this passage is about? Uh, The question is, why should God even love us? Right? Do we do we give thanks Uh, to God for His love for us? Now, in conclusion. This guy, Hugh Palmer, gave this good illustration. He said that for many people, the Christian life, uh, just like in the book of Malachi, in the the Israelites' life, the the life of God was like a a battery losing power. And the problem with the battery losing power, uh, maybe he gave this illustration before the time where you have laptops, right, where you see how much power is left. The problem with the battery losing power is it's sort of very unnoticeable. You know, it's sort of slowly losing power, And then it's undetectable and all of a sudden it sort of stops. It's like you know your alarm clock stops on the day of your big appointment. The battery just ran flat. It's just sort of running lower and lower and lower and all of a sudden it just dies. Or your remote control or something, right? And so the Christian life can be like that. We're sort of just going along. We think everything's okay. But we're getting very sloppy and complacent with our Christian life. And so the power is just running down. All of a sudden, it's just dead. This is part of the problem is really that we don't value God's love for us. We say, yeah, God loves us. But it's like water off a duck's back, right? We just don't really, really appreciate God's love. But God's love is so valuable because He chooses us and He is a great God who has chosen us. And He shows us His love in saving us from judgment. Right? Not not saving us in the way that He saved the Israelites. You know? But we mustn't measure God's love in terms of material things or what He's done for us recently, but He's shown His love for us in saving us in Jesus. Now when I do my quiet time, I have a little journal, and I uh, sort of write little notes about what I read in the Bible passage. Or, and I, and, and uh, I read somewhere that it's very good to give thanks in your journal. So every day when I start a new day, I write down five things I give thanks for. Okay? And I went back and looked at it, and I realized I never thank God for God loving me. And that's really sad, isn't it? Because that's what this passage is all about. I should give thanks. We should give thanks for God loving us. Because we would never never come to know God otherwise. Everything starts with God choosing us in his love to begin with. So do you really realize just how precious God's love for you is? That He chose you before the creation of this world. How big God is, but yet He chose you as an individual. Once you understand God's love for you, then you will be able to give thanks to God. You will be able to to be filled with joy and not ask yourself, "How God, you know, how have You loved us? What have You done for me recently?" We will be able to really say, just as the Israelites were told to say, "Great." Great is the Lord Almighty. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you, uh, we really want to uh, thank you for choosing us. And Jesus, we want to thank you for your grace and your compassion and your mercy to us. We do not know why you chose us, uh, we know that we were unworthy, but we are so grateful that you have. May we always be grateful to You. May we always be thankful for You. May we never take it for granted. May we always value and cherish that love You have for us. And may we see that love shown in the salvation given in Jesus. And may You always keep us strong in Christ. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.